ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. In the spring of 1591, the townspeople of Uglish revolted against Boris Gudinov in response to his suspected involvement in the murder of Ivan Grozny's nine-year-old son, Dmitri. The revolt was violently suppressed. Hundreds were executed and flogged. Many had their tongues cut out and their nostrils ripped. Then, the rebel lot were banished to Siberia. But not just the rebels. Uglish 300-kilo copper bell used to call the rebels to action was also whipped 12 times, its tongue cut off, and exiled to Tobolsk, where it remained until it was returned to Uglish in 1891. Such was the beginning of Tsarist Russia's exile system, where more than a million people were sent to Siberia over 300 years. What was this system like? What role did it play in the Tsarist state's effort to colonize Siberia? I turn to Daniel Beer for some answers. Daniel Beer is a senior lecturer in the History Department at Royal Holloway, University of London. He's written widely on 19th century Russia and is the author of Renovating Russia, the Human Sciences and the Fate of Liberal Modernity, 1880-1930, published by Cornell University Press. His new book is The House of the Dead, Siberian Exile Under the Tsars, published by Knopf. Here's Daniel Beer. So your your last book was on the human sciences and Russian liberalism in the late Tsarist and early Soviet period. So how did you move from that to writing about the Tsarist exile system? Well, I, I obviously have a sort of an unhealthy and abiding interest in in sort of punishment and deviance in in Russian history. I think with the first book, I became very well aware of the fact that I was really examining a a kind of elite cultural discourse surrounding you know the management of unruly populations the socioeconomic fallout of of rapid industrialization at the end of the 19th century the revolutionary challenges to the regime and ultimately sort of the 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 way in which disorder confronted the liberals own cherished aspirations for the creation of a kind of stable, reformed state based upon a kind of rational citizenry capable of discharging its kind of civic and political responsibilities. And I kind of got to the point where I was sort of, I mean, writing the book already at a stage where it was too late to do anything about it, sort of, you know, I kind of began to to realize that this, although this was a very interesting body of ideas, it really didn't say very much at all about the experience of the Russian penal system for, you know, the vast majority of the Tsarist population. And so I kind of made a note to myself that, you know, maybe for a future project, it would be interesting to do a study of Russian uh, Russian prisons or beyond that sort of the uh, the use of, of exile more generally. And then as I started reading for, you know, the sort of the second book, I became very interested in, in the way that the exile system functioned. I mean, I hadn't really, I think, had any sense of quite how large it was 
And I thought that there was enough material there to pursue sort of interesting lines of inquiry about the nature of the Tsarist state over the course of the 19th century. And it provides it provides an interesting kind of window onto the you know the modernization of the state, but also onto you know many of the debates about the legitimacy of the autocracy, its public face, both uh, at home and abroad, and the way in which groups of the populations struggle to arrogate to themselves the right to challenge either physically or morally the you know the state in which they live so i think it was i mean it was basically born of a sense of the the analytical inadequacies i suppose of of simply looking at published sources and i suppose there was also a sense in which i felt i wanted to kind of win my spurs as a as a proper quote unquote uh, historian who'd actually done the time in the archives as well. So I'd never really worked. I mean, I, I'd sort of flirted with archival sources in my PhD, but I'd never really worked with them properly. So, um, you know, I kind of also wanted to, to do that. And it's interesting because the Tsarist exile system doesn't have that vast of a literature in English in terms of scholarly studies. I mean, there's Andrew Gentis's two books, but for the most part, it's surprisingly been ignored. And, and that's surprising because there is so much published material on it that it's interesting it hasn't attracted more attention. No, that's right. And I don't really have a good, I don't really have a good explanation for that. So, um, yeah, you know, so, I mean, and yeah, and Andrew Genta's work is great. Um, Abby Schrader has written a bit about it. You know, in the UK, Alan Wood, there's actually a new book out just last year, in the autumn of last year, by Sarah Badcock, uh, looking at the exile system in eastern Siberia at the beginning of the 20th century. But yeah, it is. I mean, I guess to some extent that reflects a. I mean, it reflects a wider sort of skewed emphasis within the literature of the uh, imperial periods, which is now obviously in the process of being corrected. But it's one which has kind of neglected overall the imperial periphery. So I think that you know that kind of that sort of imperial turn or the sort of spatial turn within a lot of the historiography has also. Um, you know, the exile system has been sort of brought into into focus as one of the important adjuncts of imperial power in the period. But I guess, it, yeah, it's, you're right. It's historically suffered, you know, from an emphasis on on European Russia and you know w- within that on on sort of Moscow and Saint Petersburg. Yeah, let, let's talk about that because you you emphasize early on that there is a relationship between the Tsarist exile system, colonization, and the expansion and maintenance of the Russian Empire. So how do all of these things connect? Well, they kind of come together in a sort of, um, in a very ad hoc form. I mean, really, from the beginning of the 17th century, they come together as this, the, the Muscovite state is effectively pushing across the Urals into a power vacuum that has opened up uh, following the the waning power and influence of the Mongol horde. So the first recorded case is a is a case uh, of a, a rebellion which is quashed uh, in 1692 in the town of Uglich, north of Moscow, and the insurgents are banished to Tobolsk, including the bell. Yeah, including the bell. So the bell, the bell, yes, the bell is significant because it's rung, it's rung to summon the townspeople in revolt. And so the the Uglichans are forced to drag this bell or to carry it all the way to Taborsk. It's lowered uh, and it, it's silenced by having its clapper removed and it's subject to 200 lashes 
But I guess, I, I mean, I use this as a, as a sort of a, as, a, as an anecdote with which to open the book, because of course, it's, I mean, it brings together this idea of, you know, forced movement of peoples, the crushing of dissent, but also the extent to which the exile system is understood as a form of political oblivion. So it's a space into which insurgents, you know, unruly populations can be expelled and they are expelled into silence. Um, so, you know, and then of course this, you know, one of the one of the stories that the book is is telling is the way in which actually Siberia goes becomes sort of transformed by the exiles themselves, you know, successive waves of them from being this place of of effectively oblivion, somewhere that exists beyond the political you know, the, the frontiers of, of the Russian political imagination to being actually a, a central staging post in the origins of the Russian sort of revolutionary movements. Um, but also it becomes a kind of a canvas um, on which Russians come, at least in part, to understand their own relationship with the, with the Tsarist state. Do you think that, um, so where would you place the exile system in, in terms of Russia's expansion east, right? Because there's several different processes going on. There's the trade routes. There is the economic imperative of getting, you know, timber and furs, things like this. There's also runaway serfs. And do you see the exile system as an integral part of that colonization towards the East? So basically, yes, but but it, but it, I think it's important to emphasize that really, until the middle of the 18th century, there is really there was nothing systematic about it. So, what pulls Russian settlers, adventurers, explorers eastwards in the 17th century is basically fur, you know, what's known as soft gold, and that sort of Muscovite power is projected through a rag bag of mercenaries, some you know, soldiers, Cossacks, the forces are supplemented by uh, yeah, sort of slaves who've abs- abs- sorry, slave serfs who've absconded from European Russia. And effectively the resource extraction, so in this case the harvesting of furs, requires the projection of a kind of rough and ready form of military power and exiles are drawn into the slipstream of this eastwards expansion so they're used for, for primitive labor duties that they they come to play a, a role in the sort of logistics of this imperial expansion um you know exiled settlers are are, are traders they man um staging posts way stations, the places where horses are changed, that sort of thing. But really, it, it kind of exists in this, in this very improvised form. I mean, it's actually surprisingly effective, actually, if you look at you know, the rate of expansion eastwards is breathtaking over, over the course of the 17th century. So they've you know, reached the Pacific by, by the end of the 17th century. And I mean, they've effectively met very, very little organized uh, resistance. There are, at the start of this expansion eastwards, there are only about 230,000 indigenous peoples living in Siberia, and they're able only to kind of offer sporadic and ineffective resistance to their new Russian rulers, effectively, who've replaced the Mongols. But it really starts to be systematized or thought about more expansively, not simply as a place which can be raided uh, and from which resources can be extracted, but it also is perhaps destined to fulfill 
a kind of a, a colonial role which which would see it integrated into the Russian Empire more generally. That only really emerges, I think, in the reign of Catherine the Great. So, um, you know, under Peter still, there are specific sites of penal labour where, you know, convicts or prisoners of war, for example, are sent in order to work in mines or to work on particular construction projects. But Siberia isn't, I think it's not treated or it's not embraced as a permanent colony of of the of the empire until really towards the middle of the the 18th century and where would you to get a better understanding of how this exile system fits amongst other exile systems that are operating around the same period where would you place this the tsarist imperial russian exile system within the context of other exile and prison systems and penal labor systems before the 20th century Right. So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, is one about scale. So, you know, over this over the over the nineteenth century, about a million Tsarist subjects are uh, exiled to, you know, various punishments and locations in Siberia. That uh, can be contrasted with, for example, the British deportations to the uh, Australian penal colonies, which see about 168,000 people deported from Britain. The French numbers to uh, New Caledonia and French Guiana are, are are similarly much smaller. So, so the scale is different. I think one of the important other differences is that the so as Aidan Forth and, and others have have shown. I mean, there's a kind of a, a paradox with states like the British Empire, where they're relatively liberal at home. I mean, re- relatively liberal at home, but they are capable of being extremely brutal and repressive in the colonies. And I think that one of the so so the what stands out in the Russian case is that there is this blurred distinction between the way that the state treats those in the metropole and those on the periphery. So I think to some extent the czarist the czarist state loses a great deal of credibility and um, sort of moral authority over the course of the 19th century because it's seen to be far more repressive than its great power rivals in Western Europe. I mean, I think actually that's not really that's not really the case. But the but the but the autocracy has a kind of colonial relationship with vast swathes of its own population, whether they are in European Russia, in the Western borderlands, or in you know, a Kingdom of Poland. Um, and what's shocking to Western sensibilities in Britain, France, the US, and so on, is not that the Russians behave like this, but that they behave like this to people who actually look look and look like they're Russian and speak Russian and they're Orthodox or they're you know they're Polish and they're Catholic. So there isn't this kind of obvious racial or sort of ethnic hierarchy which structures different forms of punishment applied to different sets of the imperial population. But, you know, I have, I mean, I've I've been kind of criticised, and I think, you know, with some, some justification for kind of not not making enough of the fact that, you know, the Tsarist exile system is, it's a very brutal system, but it's in, it's not more lethal or more unpleasant than, you know, the way that, for example, the British treat the Indian insurgents following 1858, or, or indeed, you know, the, the rates of, um, the rates of mortality in New Caledonia uh, in the middle of the 19th century. So, you know, I think it, 
it's not something I, th- I think the point of the exile system is not I mean, my, my concern was not to argue that Russia was somehow already uh, a state that was kind of out there at the margins of of the European norm, you know, that was already pursuing forms of punishment um, that that set it apart from its uh, European um, rivals. But I think that the, nevertheless, the, uh, the scale and um, you know, the populations caught up in this project of, of penal colonization are significantly different or are understood by contemporaries to be significantly different from the ways in which states operate in the West. So, so for Russians, by the, by the end of the 19th century, the exile system itself has become an indictment of the backwardness and the, and the kind of you know, the vestiges of what they talk about as the Mongol yoke or, or this kind of semi-barbaric power in Russia. Whether or not that's true, I think, is, is, is very much open to question. But it was, it was something that operated very powerfully within both you know, the Russian and the European imagination at the time. Well, let's talk about the process in which someone ends up in the exile system. So what could, you know, you talked about revolt and rebellion and revolutionary activity. We know, you know, we know this, but what types of crimes, other crimes can get you sent into exile? How did these people get to Siberia and what did they find when they got there? Okay, so there are a range of different crimes, sort of real and imagined, um, can land you in Siberia. So uh, obviously, those who are guilty of, you know, sort of se- you know, serious, serious felons, you know, murderers, those who are engaged in violent, violent crimes of, of different sorts, um, are usually exiled to penal labour. So there are kind of there are two categories. Penal labour is basically reserved for capital offences. And the interesting thing to note there is that penal labour is actually a death sentence suspended. So one of the one of the things I sort of talk about in the book is the way that it's the most powerful exercise of uh, the Tsar's sovereign power that he actually grants life with a sentence of penal labour to those who actually should be put to death. So they kind of live, as it were, forevermore only because the Tsar permits them to breathe. Those people account for about 10%, I mean, give or take, it goes up and down, of course, um, over the course of the 19th century, of all exiles sent to Siberia. At the end of a term of penal labor, which can be anywhere from kind of, you know, five years to lifelong penal labor, you are then uh, released to settlement. And eventually, the idea is that you'll you'll be allowed to remain uh, in Siberia to reside wherever you like, and you are integrated into the Siberian peasantry. For all lesser crimes, you're just exiled to settlement, which basically means the state tells you that you know you have to go and live in that particular. So you know, usually you're assigned to a particular village uh, in a particular district. I mean, supervision is pretty much non-existent, so there's a great deal of um, there's a great deal of kind of room for maneuver within that. So some people are are tried, you know, and they are sentenced by the courts, or they are simply exiled extrajudicially by the state, but very perniciously for the for the status of the exile system as a kind of as an institution which as this 19th century progresses is supposed to have some sort of juridical foundation, is the fact that the state farms out powers of exile to a whole host of peasant communities, merchant guilds, and and other institutions in the empire. So 
peasants, for example, are able to nominate effectively for administrative exile members of their own communes who have either committed crimes or indeed have just fallen foul of, you know, the kind of cauldron of village uh, politics. So there's this sort of elastic term of durno pavidinia, you know, sort of um, obscene or indecent behaviour, which is a sort of catchall term and can be used, it is used, you know, is embraced kind of enthusiastically by peasants as a way of getting rid of troublemakers of the old and the frail, the handicapped, you know, anyone who's become kind of an economic burden uh, on the village. Let me ask you something about this, because this seems to be somewhat of a, I, I don't know if this makes the SARS exile system unique, but it's quite a decentralized form of allowing for punishment, right? You're giving local communities and guilds and these kind of organizations um, within the Sosolovia system, like power to exile. That That's quite surprising, I think. Yeah, so in a way, the whole, I mean, the whole of the exile system sort of emerges as an example of this sort of chronically undergoverned uh, empire. So, you know, to go back to my point at the very beginning, I mean, I was talking about, you know, in the first book, I was talking about criminologists sort of, you know, creating their panopticon type prisons and talking about how the, you know, the, the, the sort of rehabilitative power of the state can be brought to bear on, on, on offenders in this very powerful and undiluted form. And of course, the reality is a state which is so unable to police its own population, particularly you know, in, in the Russian countryside, that it needs to farm out basically responsibility for law and order to uh, these subordinate groups within within the empire. And of course, that that means that the state also loses control over the way in which those powers are exercised. And similarly, within the exile system, the state relies on, during the deportation convoys, you know, so people, at the beginning of the 19th century, you basically walk into exile. So the journey time can take anywhere between, you know, one and two years uh, to get there. And before Speransky's reforms of, of 1822, you know, the state just relies on the local peasantry. So prisoners are marched in convoys of you know, two or they can be 200, 400 strong uh, eastwards, and they are literally overnighting in peasant villages. The peasants are responsible for maintaining the roads. They are responsible for provisioning uh, the convoys. I mean, they, they, they gleefully sort of um, exploit their their monopoly um, in terms of supplying provision, uh, the convicts with food and clothing. But again, what this means is it's, it's fundamentally subverting the state's ambitions, which are to ensure the relatively rapid transfer of healthy and sort of robust penal colonists eastwards. And what happens is that they are, um, for a start at the beginning of the journey, they very often have got a kind of a collection of people who are desperately old, frail, blind. You know, they've been selected for exile not for their productivity, but precisely because of their lack of it by their own peasant communities. And then by the time these people actually reach, you know, Transbaikal, they've been so thoroughly fleeced and exploited by convoy commanders whose families run these these way stations that Spiransky sets up these kind of they're called the etap where prisoners overnight you know so you do a day's march you then you then rest up for the night you then continue the journey you know they they run the, these the they're, they're responsible for provisioning convicts and they they exploit this captive audience that they have 
so you know the state's kind of colonial ambitions are effectively kind of turning to ashes in the in the convoys because the prison by the time the prisoners reach their appointed destination they're sort of you know half starving mockeries of the you know of these robust colonists that that populate the you know the imagination of senior bureaucrats um, in uh, St Petersburg. So so yeah, I mean that's that, that that's one of the points that I I kind of emphasize throughout the book, which is probably why I'm talking about it at such length. Um, it is exactly that it's a window onto a state in which there is. I mean, all states have this, right? But I think it's particularly pronounced in Russia in the 19th century that this is, in a sense, a state that has. Grand ambitions, yeah, the sort of penal colonization of a continent, or at least the ambition that the exile system is going to play this kind of sustained and productive role within the state's wider campaign to, you know, not just not just harvest resources now, but really settle Siberia and bind it to European Russia. So it has these grand ambitions, but it is administratively so weak. Um, that there is this chronic shortfall throughout the, the 19th century between what the state is setting out to achieve and and its ability to implement these um, these designs on the ground, and it's precisely this this gap between ambition and reality that actually, in many ways, forms the most punishing aspect of the exile system. Yeah, this is one I want to ask about because, in, in a way, it, it actually parallels the structure of the serf system. Right, where serfdom is administered through basically these kind of local power structures from, from the, the, the bailiff, because most of the, the landowners are, are absentee landowners, the bailiff and then the peasant community. It's, it's really fascinating. But in terms of the brutality aspect, right? Cause these people are, there's mutilation. Talk about the cutting of like nostrils. You, you, of course, there's whipping. Um, there's also in the, some of the, the, the images that you provide and paintings, there's people with half shaved heads. And talk about that level of kind of marking the, the convict or marking the exile, I mean, physically. So, so I mean, at the beginning of the 18th century, actually, it's, it's really, really uh, draconian. So limbs are amputated and so on. And there's the practice of tearing out nostrils, which is practiced under Catherine the Great, I can't remember the exact date at which it's phased out, but it's kind of a, it, it's about eighteen ten or eight, eighteen twenty. Um, it's phased out, and there's obviously a tension between inflicting physical damage on the body on the one hand, and then wanting to preserve the body as as a useful agent of of you know state power and interest in Siberia. So so some of the arguments that are made about the flogging or different forms of corporal punishment are that they they do so much damage to the penal laborers that they are then rendered incapable of work so there is there there is a kind of pressure at the beginning and sort of the beginning of the of the 19th century to to uh, mitigate the worst effects uh, on the on the bodies of the exiles and i think also there is to be uh, fair, as it were, I think there is also kind of increasing sort of disquiet at um, the kind of what what's seen as the more barbaric features of some of these punishments. 
so the the state is very concerned with trying to make make sure that the exile population remains uh, visible. You know, so Abby Schrader's talked about this in her work, the way that branding and to some extent flogging is a way of you know inscribing a certain identity onto the body of the exile. The problem that the state has, so it, it pursues branding right through until the the middle of the nineteenth century, and one of the problems that it has is that. Exiles prove uh, astonishingly ingenious in removing brands from their bodies. So they, you know, they use blister beetles. They they burn them off. You know, there are there are kind of lots of hideous and and, and you know, uh, which I mean, actually, the, I mean, it shows the extent, the the lengths to which these people were ready to go in order to remove the brands. You know, tells tells us something about how loathed they were and and how restrictive they were when it came to things like freedom of movement and employment within Siberia but more generally i mean the the the, the thing which stood out to me in in the sources was that you know this is a weak state in Siberia so you have czarist officials who are in charge of you know hundreds sometimes thousands of you know, desperate, destitute, and, you know, some of them clearly very unpleasant criminals. And that these, that the the violence, I mean, these kind of demonstrative, spectacular, fearsome acts of physical violence are attempt to kind of keep the the exile population in check. You know, so this is, I mean, this is a million miles away from, you know, Foucault's understanding of the prison system in the West. You know, this is still a state where physical brutality serves a very important function of, of deterrence uh, and control. And, and really, I think, you, I mean, one of the paradoxes, and I suppose this speaks to the, une- the very uneven nature of the empire's development over the 19th century is that you have the coexistence of things like the gauntlet and you know brutal floggings all the way through the 19th century right up to the point where you know the guys that then, that, that I was writing about in my first book are attending sort of criminological congresses in western europe and are talking about the latest you know latest strategies for disciplining prisoners in the penal system so, so it's this kind of weird, this 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 weird coexistence of very modern and kind of pre-modern forms of punishment. Well, what was life like? Because you describe uh, there's a very unevenness in the sense of you know it depends on your crime. Um, it also depends on who you are, right? The, you know, some people have better conditions. You know, you point out how Lenin. Lenin's exile seems to be relatively comfortable, um, as opposed to certainly some other punishments. So what was it like in penal colonies and in prison labor, or penal labor and in living in villages amongst peasants? Yes, it is basically pretty random. So some some exiles, I mean, you know, Lenin, Lenin is a you know, representative of a of a you know particular kind of 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 well very well resourced political prisoner but of course he's not alone i mean the decembrists you know enjoy uh, all manner of 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 you know privileges i mean it's interesting that the you know in theory a sentence of penal labor annihilates your status and your rights uh, within the Saslovia system so you are kind of reduced to a juridical sort of zero as you know as you're only you know as i said before you're only left alive in the grace of the czar um, but of course in practice family connections you know the way that you the way that you speak the way that you dress you know 
massively conditions the way in which czarist uh, administrators, soldiers, convoy commanders, and so on um, relate to you. So to some extent, your experience differs enormously in accordance with your own social origins. But of course, it depends enormously on the amount of money that you have at your disposal. If you're able to pay bribes, you know, you, you for example, hire other penal laborers to do your work for you and so on. I mean, that, that, that all goes on. Penal settlements at the beginning of the 19th century are centered around things like mines, uh, penal distilleries. These are either just kind of scattered barracks in very remote locations from which it's very difficult. I mean, you can flee into the woods, but, you know, it's very difficult to either either remain alive or or at least to make to make it back to any you know significant population center so so although large numbers of prisoners do flee there is no sustained effort by the state to kind of prevent them from doing so i mean again partly because the state just doesn't have the resources other prisoners are uh, held as for example dostoevsky was in omsk in a kind of penal fort so this is basically a sort of you know wooden fort which contains barracks and the prisoners are held inside it and then they're marched out in work details under armed guard to engage in activities like road building or tree felling. Um, I mean, later in the 19th century, you know, railway construction uh, and so on. But the majority are assigned to villages where you know they kind of eke out an existence as itinerant uh, laborers you know some of them have skills that they're able to monetize you know they you know they they they're literate they they you know they have some basic medical training they you know they they work as carpenters you know various sort of artisanal activities but they are terribly exploited by the Siberian peasantry so they're seen as a kind of pool of cheap labor so one of the one of the the big problems that the state has is that it's effectively it's it has enough power to move people from A to B you know to ensure that they they are you know deported thousands of miles across the empire but it doesn't have the resources uh, to ensure that they are properly provisioned so that they can actually establish themselves as penal settlers in the way that the state intends and then more generally, you know, sort of within within the penal forts and the various colonies, uh, again, you have very prisoners set up these kind of self self governing organisations, the artieli, which administer sort of rough and ready forms of justice. They oversee transactions, exchanges of goods between prisoners. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the practice of changing names in the deportation convoy. So prisoners sell their names and by extension their sentences in the deportation convoys to other prisoners. I mean, again, the state doesn't have any real handle on exactly who is who. There's just a list of names and the the convoy commander, provided he delivers the same list of names from one way station to the next, you know, his job is done. So the the authorities, they tolerate a very high level of kind of self-governance in many of these exile communities, again, because they have to. But of course, what they are effectively doing is sharing sort of sovereignty with these groups. And, they, you know, sometimes agendas overlap. So, for example, in the deportation convoys, the head of the of the prisoners, uh, Artiel, will will strike a, a bargain with the convoy commander that, that fe- you know, the shackles on the legs will be removed 
in exchange for a guarantee that no prisoners will escape. And that's usually observed. And if some prisoners do try to, to escape, they'll be hunted down by the other convicts as well. But of course, you know the the, the practice of name swapping or smuggling uh, in and out of, of of prisons, stealing precious metals from the mines and so on, which is also organised by prisoners, that runs completely counter to uh, to the state's uh, agenda. And and of course, you know, as we as we know, the exile system has a rich history as a subject of Russian literature and art, and you include, you know, your, your book is named after Dostoevsky's uh, work, and you have, you've provided really some nice paintings representing uh, the exile system. So what kind of themes did writers and artists in the 19th century try to bring to light about the Tsarist exile system? So, well, I guess it's kind of two, I mean, there, there, are, there, are, there are two principal themes. I mean, one, one is of Siberia as this place of complete sort of perdition, so you know it's this this dark recess of kind of autocratic power it's where it's where the state is kind of you know let, laid bare in all its its horror you know for, for as far as educated exiles are concerned but that view of siberia sort of sits in a state of tension with this other view which stresses that you know siberia is a place of you know, refuge from the stifling hierarchies of, you know, European Russia. It's a place of kind of spiritual redemption. It's a place that hasn't been contaminated by serfdom. It's a place of freedom. And so I suppose, I mean, Dostoevsky, of course, this is none of this is new, but, you know, Dostoevsky is, is a fantastic exponent of this way. You know, when he's initially released from the penal fort in Omsk, he writes to his brother about how absolutely terrible it was, and the you know these awful penal labourers who didn't have a scintilla of conscience left among any of them, and they they preyed upon the educated prisoners with whom they shared their captivity. Yeah, this real kind of revulsion at conditions in the fort, and yet you know twenty years later, um, he's writing in kind of dewy-eyed tones about you know how there wasn't a single prisoner among them um, who did not not feel strongly in his own heart his wrongdoing and you know was kind of you know in search of redemption and that sort of binary does you know does inform quite a lot of the the writing you know the decembrists again i mean siberia is terrible but it's also this place of it provides them with a platform on which they can kind of enact um you know their republican ideals so it's a sort of a site of a site of martyrdom but also you know a site of kind of spiritual liberation or regeneration and i guess that actually echoes to some extent a kind of tension in the in the state's own treatment of siberia where you know on the one hand it's viewed as this um this vast dumping ground for the empire's criminals and insurgents and so on. And yet, on the other hand, it's being reconfigured, um, certainly from the middle of the 19th century onwards, as this you know, fantastic penal colony which opens up great scientific and commercial and cultural opportunities for the empire in the East, and that actually the exile system is an impediment to the pursuit of Russia's imperial ambitions beyond the Urals. So, so there's a kind of schizophrenia almost in the way that the state itself, uh, and, and, and Russian public opinion too, views Siberia. So it's, it's kind of on the one hand, it's Russia's California, 
And on the other hand, it's this, you know, ice-bound hellhole, which is is fit for no purpose other than to serve as a receptacle for the kind of, you know, the human refuse uh, of, of the empire. And finally, the gulag is, is often used as a metaphor for the USSR. So what does the exile system say to you about the Russian empire? Well, that's a, it's a tough question. I mean, I think it, so I think it captures, uh, I mean, one of the things we've been talking about, the fact that it's an undergoverned system. So, you know, as I said, in a way, the worst punishments are not punishments that are actively encouraged or sort of stipulated by the centre, but they are a result of the kind of miseries and torments inflicted on exiles and, and of course, their families um, by you know, the state's inability to actually manage this system uh, efficiently and by the fact that they're basically just kind of abandoned, you know, to their own very meager resources and they are subject to exploitation from, you know, all manner of other other groups. So I think it captures this this uh, idea of a, of a state which, you know, has increasingly over the 19th century embraced a grand project of fusing together punishment on the one hand and and colonization on the other and actually sort of rehabilitation the idea that prisoners should be rehabilitated and they should be regenerated and can be kind of usefully i suppose in a way reprogrammed by you know the excel system to serve as czarist subjects you know that's all really explicit from the 1860s onwards and yet you know the state is unable to kind of achieve those goals and I think also it just tells us something about the the state's failure to manage, or, or I suppose it it casts light on the state's struggle and losing struggle to kind of defend its own moral authority um, and its and to kind of quell pressures for um, you know reform at least, or in some cases revolution uh, as the nineteenth century progresses. So you know the kind of paternalism which underpins the sanctity of the Tsar's power is terribly eroded uh, in Siberia, where you have, you know, this Tsar emerges as a kind of a, as an abusive parent, if you like, who is um, seemingly indifferent to the plight of exiles and particularly their families. So, you know, one of the things we haven't mentioned is is is, is that you know the state encourages and in some cases forces it's usually the women and children of exiles to follow their husbands and fathers into Siberia. So this is, you know, the state embraces the family as like a, as a, as a sort of domesticating force and something which will ultimately promote the rehabilitation of exiles and will help establish them as, as a sort of stable, law-abiding colonial force uh, in Siberia. But of course, you know, the women and the children are cast into this, you know, dreadful kind of almost Hobbesian world of, you know, sexual exploitation and poverty and so on. And this this all starts to kind of seep out. So particularly after the great reforms, I mean, it was possible, I think, under, under Nicholas I really to, you know, people were aware of the Decembrists and they, you know, they kind of, but but really, it's from it's from the 1860s onwards. You know, Dostoevsky's you know, the Notes from the House of the Dead. Um, the you know sort of ethnographic works begin to seep out, and really by you know by the 1890s when Chekhov is visiting St- um, uh, Sakhalin uh, and writing about it, you know, the exile system itself has become this kind of searing indictment of the apparent brutality and inhumanity of uh, the Tsarist regime. 
So to go back to the point I made earlier about the, you know, the, the, the contrast or comparisons with other penal regimes in, um, in Europe at the time, I think the, the British treatment of colonized peoples did not elicit anything like the amount of public outrage at home that the czarist treatment of its own its own population does so so it becomes i think this 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 view of the ex of, of the exile population as fundamentally rightless and subject to the kind of the abusive caprice of uh, the authorities you know abandoned destitute and so on it sort of holds a mirror up to, as far as educated Russia is concerned, it, it holds a mirror up to something that exists within their own, you know, status within the empire. I mean, there is there is a sense of which, you know, the plight of the exiles represents in kind of distilled form something disturbing about the condition of the empire's population more generally. That was Daniel Beer, a senior lecturer in the history department at Royal Holloway, University of London. He's the author of The House of the Dead, Siberian Exile Under the Tsars, published by Knopf. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. A new royal family of wild nobility. We are the family. A new royal family of wild nobility.